Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 13. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. And he ate the produce of the field. And he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. Curds of cows and the milk of the flock. With fat of lambs and rams. The breed of Bashan and goats. With the finest of the wheat and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. But Jeshurun, that is Israel, upright ones, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him, and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Fathers, we study these things this morning. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to be our teacher and our guide as we do every week, Lord. We ask that your Spirit be upon us and in us, whispering to us, speaking to our hearts, and guiding us into your word. May we, Father, see and understand the truth as we seek to be people of the truth. May we know you better and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are many claims to the origins of Thanksgiving, which we just celebrated this last week. But for all the claims that are out there, the Judeo-Christian ethic in the founding of our country, in the founding of America, is unmistakable. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. When you look at the true history of this country, we are founded on Christian principle. We are founded on such things as the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, the teachings of Scripture. It is throughout government, and it's going to take atheistic people a long, long time to get it all worked out of there as they may be attempting to do. If you go all the way back to 1564, on June the 30th, a small group of French Huguenots established a settlement near present-day Jacksonville, Florida. Their leader, René de Laudonnaire, wrote the following. He wrote, We sang a psalm of thanksgiving unto our God, beseeching Him that it would please Him to continue His accustomed goodness toward us. In 1610, the Jamestown colonists after a severe winter referred to as the starving time, called for a day of thanksgiving. And you need to know the day of thanksgiving they called for in Jamestown followed this winter that began with 409 colonists and ended with 60. And yet they called for a day of thanksgiving. On December 4th, just nine years later, 1619, 38 colonists known as the Berkeley Hundred landed in another part of Virginia and they proclaimed the following, We ordain that the day of our ship's arrival in the land of Virginia shall be yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. Though still not proclaimed a national holiday, Thanksgiving became annually observed throughout all of New England year after year, immediately following the autumn harvest, until finally it was made official. October the 3rd, 1863, when Abraham Lincoln wrote the following words, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy 
I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday in November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in heaven. And so from that point on, thanksgiving was established. Now, later on, Franklin Delano Roosevelt would move the day back, or he wanted to move it back to the third Thursday of the month, third Thursday of November, to buy an extra week of shopping for the commercialistic society that America was fast becoming. In fact, some at that point began to call the holiday Thanksgiving. It resulted in what they called the Fourth Thursday Compromise. So Thanksgiving falls on that fourth Thursday, and if it happened to be five in the month, it's always going to be then that fourth But some might be wondering, okay, in all of that brief Thanksgiving history, what about Plymouth Rock? What about Plymouth Rock? Well, that's a good question. If you look up Plymouth Rock and do a little study, you find out that it's called by many people today the most disappointing landmark in America. You can actually see what they call Plymouth Rock. And it's a stone that's not very big. It's pretty shabby. It's small in size and has very limited access. A disappointing rock. And yet Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So while Plymouth Rock would disappoint, Peter says we have a rock that does not disappoint. That cannot disappoint. Which is why as Christians, our thanksgiving is directed to a completely different rock altogether. Not Plymouth, but Jesus. Five times in the Song of Moses, he sings of the rock which is in Christ. The rock is Christ. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, he says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. The God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Verse 15, he says that that it's the rock of Israel's salvation. Verse 18, he talks about the rock who begot Israel. Verse 30, he said, How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? And then in verse 31, it says, Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Some have called this the first true rock song ever written. The designation here is that God is our rock and our rock is perfect. And throughout Scripture, you're probably aware that the phrase rock, the word rock, is applied to Christ, applied to our Father throughout the Bible. You find it all over the place. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. Hannah, when she was giving up her son Samuel, who God had blessed her with, giving him up to, to be in the temple, he became the prophet that would later anoint King Saul, and then after him, David. But Hannah said, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. 2 Samuel 22, verse 2. David later would say, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, my rock in whom I take refuge. And later David would write, For who is God besides the Lord, and who is a rock besides our God? The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. Those words are repeated. They're in 2 Samuel 22. They're also repeated later on in Psalm 18, as David applies the rock to God. And he'll do so 20 more times in the Psalms. God is my rock. My rock. And you all know, Paul told us, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, the rock is Christ. Christ the rock. There's no more solid foundation 
than the rock of Jesus Christ. Who we stand on, who we trust, who we believe in. But this allusion to the rock in Moses' song, it's absolutely critical to understanding the whole song itself. To understanding the strength and the foundation of Jesus. And there's a special connection, by the way, in this song between the rock and the land that the people are about to enter. Now remember, they're standing on this side of the Jordan. They're looking across. Moses is singing, teaching this song. And he's talking about the rock. And they would see and understand this, especially once they crossed into the land. Verse 14 talks about this land they would receive curds of cows and milk of the flock and fat of lambs and rams the breed of Bashan and goats and the finest of wheat and the blood of grapes you drank wine Moses is speaking prophetically here about how it would be in the land as they crossed over if they would be plentiful a bounteous beautiful land and indeed Israel was in his book Sketches of Jewish Social Life Alfred Adersheim writes the following he says the land combined every variety of climate from the snows of Mount Hermon and the cool of Lebanon to the genial warmth of the Lake of Galilee and the tropical climate of the Jordan Valley he writes accordingly not only the fruit trees the grain and the garden produce known in our colder latitudes were found in the land along with those of sunnier climes also rare spices and perfumes of the hottest zones similarly it is said every kind of fish teemed in its waters while birds of the most gorgeous plumage filled the air with their song within such small compass the country must have been unequaled for charm and for beauty it's an amazing country Israel if you see it it is tiny it's roughly a third the size of Washington state it would fit inside of New Jersey this is a tiny little country and yet the expanse of Israel is amazing from north to south as you travel what you would see and experience in that land. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 65, the pastures of the wilderness drip and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. And an Israelite standing in the land that Moses was about to say goodbye and watch them go on into, that they were about to enter, an Israelite could have just as easily sung, Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains majesty above the fruited plains. There's some connection there. There's something to the Israelite attitude and how they handle the land they were given and the American attitude and how we handle the land that we receive as well. The prophecy students take note of this. Daniel, specifically in chapter 11, he describes the final battle at Megiddo, that final onslaught, and he calls Israel at that time the beautiful land, which indicates the land would be beautiful once again. It's an amazing thing for students of prophecy because as recently as 50, 100 years ago, Israel was a barren waste. It was wiped out. We've talked about why that after Hadrian the emperor drove Israel out of the land, drove the Jews out, he had the land salted to destroy all the fields. Later a tax was put on the trees in the land and so all the people obviously rather than pay taxes cut down the trees and the land became decimated. And when people would travel it, again, just in the last century, they would see a land that, that was far from beautiful. You'd read in scripture about this beautiful country, this beautiful land called Israel, and you couldn't connect the two. But today, the land is growing beautiful once again. It's an amazing, amazing thing to see the flowering and the beauty 
in the land of Israel. But you need to understand something about the landscape of Israel, and it applies to this psalm. For the landscape is rocky. It's a very rocky land. We saw when we were in Israel last January, a manger. And I was very impressed by this manger. Some of you saw a picture of it that I showed several months back. The manger was not what you'd think. Coming up upon Christmas, we have this Americanized view of the whole nativity scene. And it includes a nice wooden manger, you know, probably sanded nicely, with blankets inside for the baby to lie in. The manger was made of stone. Because the Israelites and the people in Israel at the time, they didn't have wood like we have wood. Our tour guide last year, he said, you Americans think in terms of America. You have trees and so you make things out of wood. We have stone. So we make things out of stone. Which is why so much has existed and lasted over the years, archaeologically speaking. But it is a stone country, a stony, rocky place. And it helps us to understand a little more of Moses' song, especially the following verse. Verse 13, second half of the verse, and this is what I want to key in on this morning. He made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. And that makes perfect sense in Israel's landscape. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense in our landscape. Honey from the rock? We don't get honey out of rocks. We get honey out of trees. Out of old, you know, rotten trees. Places where bees will build their hives. And yet in Israel, the wild bees will build their nests in the cracks and fissures and crevices of rock. So as Moses saying, that he caused you to suck honey out of the rock, of course he did. Because that's where the bees made their honey. By the way, that word suck there... In the Hebrew is Yanak. Yanak, which literally means to nurse. In other words, Israel, you're going to be nursed by honey out of the rock. You're going to be nurtured. It speaks of nutrition, of life, and of care. But it's not only beehives that exist in the rocks. You can see this even today. Olive trees. Olive trees are tenacious plants, and they literally will grow right up out of this rocky soil and cling to stony crags, growing firm and strong, producing their precious oil. I would liken it to, as you drive across the Deception Pass Bridge, you see madrona trees. You see cedars and firs that are, literally, it looks like they are growing out of stone. It's a beautiful sight. And this is what you would see with the olive trees of Israel. And so the Lord is saying, Israel, I'll nurse you with sweet honey and smooth oil, even in the very place you thought to be barren. The rocky places. The places that to look at you would think, how could that possibly produce any kind of life? And yet God says, that's where I'm going to bring your life. And we can apply that a little bit to ourselves in the barren places, in the rocky places, in the hard times. God says, I'll provide your life. I'll bring the things that you would least expect, the sweet honey and the smooth oil. Psalm 81.16, he says, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And Bible students, what does honey speak of in the Bible? What is honey a description of? Okay, you're too cold to answer. I'll give you the answer. <laughs> Psalm 119.103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 19.10, They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The word of God is honey to the mouth. 
But even the study of the Word, the reading of the Word, meditating upon the Word is like sucking honey from the rock. It's honey to our lips, sweet to the taste. But I need you to understand something. We talked about this back in the Revelation series. And I'm not sure that everybody had a chance to hear this. I want to share this this morning. Because that which is sweet to the taste is not always sweet. It doesn't always sit well in the stomach. There are two parallel passages I want to jump to this morning. Revelation chapter 10. Flip over there. Far end of your Bibles. Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. The Bible, is, as we've seen, as, we, as we've talked about... Oops, hang on. The Bible, as we've talked about, is sweet as honey. But there's also a secondary aspect of the Word of God. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 8. The voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, John is writing, and he says, The voice said, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. What kind of book, when digested, could be sweet to the taste, but then bitter to the stomach? It's a curious picture in the book of Revelation that John describes an experience he had. His snack is strange and yet wonderful because it's a potent and prophetic picture of the Bible itself. It's prophetic to John because remember at the time that John wrote the Revelation, the scriptures as we have them put together to now were basically Old Testament and a scattering of letters. It wasn't put together in the nice form that we have it, but I believe the Lord was giving to John here a picture of a book that would be both sweet to the taste and bitter to the stomach. Why would it be bitter to the stomach? How, how is that possible? It, it doesn't make sense. And listen, feeding on God's Word is a sweet and sour experience. It contains aspects of both. The Word gets into us, and it begins by that sweet taste. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love the themes of forgiveness and mercy and faithfulness and joy. I love getting that in my mouth. I think, mmm, that's tasty stuff. I enjoy hearing about Jesus and His healing and His compassion. But the more I digested the Word, the more my belly begins to ache with a bitterness. Does that make sense to anyone? That you eat this sweet tasting Word and yet your belly would ache. The Greeks, the Greeks wouldn't have sold bumper stickers for their chariots with the phrase, I heart you on them. I love you. If they had had bumper stickers, they would have sold them with something like, I bowel you. Because the Greek word for bowel, for heart, what we consider heart, even what's translated often in the scriptures as heart, is literally splachna, which means bowels, or digestive tract, intestines. Because that's where you feel things. We talk about, oh, I felt it in my heart. No, probably, chances are you felt it down lower. You know, when you feel it, where do you get butterflies? You get butterflies in your heart? You get them in your stomach. 
When you're worried about something, when you're stressed out, do you feel it in your heart? I guess you could, but mostly you're feeling it in your stomach. The seed of emotion. We're told in Mark 6.34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. That compassion Jesus felt, the word compassion there again, splachna. It's a great Greek word. I just like to throw it out every now and then. Oh, splachna. (laughs) A little out of sorts. Compassion. Compassion is a bellyache. True compassion feels. It, it hurts. And when you see a people who are lost, as Jesus looked out on all the people who were helpless and harassed, He felt compassion on them. He had an ache for them. In His love for them. This is what happens when we read, when we study the Word. We taste the sweetness of it. But the more we know the Word, the more bitter our stomachs become as we recognize those who don't know the Word. Those who sit in darkness. Rod just handed me this morning an article. Thick haze covering early earth may have nourished budding life. And they write that the earth was very young a few billion years ago. A thick smoggy haze shrouded the planet. What's interesting is the Bible describes a canopy, a water canopy, very much like this, that surrounded the earth prior to the flood. And now the scientists are just starting to figure this out, although they trace it about you know, two, three billion years ago. I would say probably more like 6,000, but we can debate that at another time. And they're all into this, a team of chemists and biologists trying tricky experiments, figuring out that nutrient chemicals might even have been the stuff from which the earliest forms of life emerged on the earth, once again from the goo to you, to the zoo, or whichever way you want to put it. Talking about this chemical haze, and I, I read that and I was talking to Ron Barb, and, and you know, it just stuns me. That it's like standing in a dark room, as I told Barb this morning, like standing in a dark room and you've got night vision goggles on and you can see everything and you've got a bag full of night vision goggles and you just want to hand them out to people but nobody wants them. They'd rather stand there in the dark and that makes my stomach hurt. That whenever we get compassion in our hearts for a lost world around us, it begins to ache to be difficult. Yes, the word is sweet but the word is also bitter to the, to the stomach. Because once we get it inside, we recognize that there are people without the Word, without the Lord, people who are lost and dying in their sins. There is a sweetness in knowing that Jesus saves. But there is a bitterness in knowing that if that's the case, people I care about at this moment are going to hell. Now there's a second parallel passage I want you to flip to. It's in the book of Ezekiel, back about halfway, a little past halfway through your Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 2. Flip over there and take a look at this. Ezekiel chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This is a parallel passage. Ezekiel has a very similar experience to the experience of John. John is told, take the little book, eat it. It's sweet to the taste, but it's bitter when it gets down into his stomach. Watch what happens to Ezekiel. Verse 8 of chapter 2. God is speaking to Ezekiel the prophet. He says, now you son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And I looked, and behold, oops, sorry, I read that verse. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and on the back. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. 
And he said to me, chapter 3, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving to you. And I ate it and watch this. It was sweet as honey in the mouth. And then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Sound familiar to the culture you're living in? Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like an emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them. Do not be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious people. By the way, if someone says you're hard-headed about your belief system, just say thank you. So is Ezekiel. Going on, verse 10, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into all your heart all my words which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in His place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them. Even a great rumbling sound. What does that mean? I'll explain it when we get to Ezekiel. Verse 14. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and watch this, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit. And the hand of the Lord was strong on me. This scroll was sweet to the mouth of Ezekiel as he ate it. As he took in the words of the Lord, it was sweet to the taste. But suddenly there was a result of bitterness. I was embittered, he says. It goes on and says, I came to the exiles who lived, verse 15, beside the river Chabar at Tel Aviv. Then I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. Stirring the pot. Ezekiel was just frustrating the people. You see, he tasted the word of God, but the result was a bitterness, a frustration, a consternation, and a rejection of the very words, the very sweet words, which could save the people. A Time Magazine, hang in there, I'm going to make it. A Time Magazine poll revealed the following. 80% of Americans believe in a literal heaven. 80%. of these same Americans believe when they die, they're going there. They believe in a heaven, and they believe when they die, they're going there. And I believe Russ is going to be okay, so back up front here. I want you to get this statistic and listen close. Russ didn't go out. Who was that? Oh, it was Jim. Jim will be okay. <laughs> Okay, once again, listen to this statistic. How are you doing, Jim? A Time Magazine poll. Listen, 80% of Americans believe in a literal heaven. 8 out of 10 people believe heaven is real. It really exists. 75% of Americans believe they're going there. There is a heaven and I'm headed that way. And yet, 75% of Americans today are not born again. By their own admission. 
by their own claim. And Jesus said in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Somebody's wrong here. Either the Lord's wrong, or this large percentage of people, these 75% who are not born again, are wrong. And Jesus said in Matthew 7.14, The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and they are few who find it. And it's been said that the distance from life to, to heaven, that people will only miss heaven by 18 inches, which is the distance from the head to the heart. Now I would add something to that. I'd add another foot. It's the distance from the word to the head. Because you've got to get the word to the head, to the heart, to be born again. To believe. Paul said in Romans 10.14, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And here's the key. How will they hear without a herald? Not a herald verge, a herald, a preacher. How will they believe without one who is sent? Amos 8.11, the Lord prophesies, and I believe it was, it was a prophecy for Israel, but I believe it applies to our country today. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.3 Paul writes that the time will come when they will, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths and gang, these are the days we're living in. The days where, like Israel, America has grown fat and kicked. We have grown fat and thick and sleek back in the Song of Moses. We are a filled people. Yesterday I was out talking to Mike Freeman and he, he was saying, I still feel pregnant from, from Thanksgiving Day. I'm still stuffed. I don't know how you felt, but I got done with that meal and I was plump. I was happy. But all I really wanted... You know, what is that, what is that drug, drug in Turkey? Tryptophan? Good stuff. You fill up on the turkey, you sit in the chair and you just... <laughs> you're thick and you're fat and you're stuffed and this is America of today and you might say well Rick if people aren't going to listen if that's the way it is the word's just going to be rejected time and time again then what do I do? well you do exactly what you need to do when your stomach's bitter you got to get what's causing that bitterness out <clears throat> sweet to the taste bitter to the stomach get it out if the word causes you to have a bellyache, if you have a compassion for a lost word, then you get it out to the people who need to hear it. Get the word out. That's what the angel tells John back in Revelation 10. He says, A time is coming when repentance will cease and rebellion will rule. And you can read the latter half of the book of Revelation and you discover that at the very last few years of time as we know it on planet Earth, that during that time people will stop repenting. They will know it's God. They will see the Lord. They'll know that it's Him doing what's going on. But they will absolutely reject. They will rebel. They won't repent anymore. And so the angel tells John, speak the word again. Prophesy again. You keep speaking it. You keep saying it. With every breath in you, you tell people about Jesus and you don't stop. And we're entering into that season where a lot of family are going to be around us who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Don't stop talking about it. 
Well, that may make it a little difficult around the Christmas tree. Great. Make it difficult. You shouldn't be the only one with a bitter stomach. Give it to them. And then they can get the word out. You may be like John or Ezekiel. You may say, I've tried to bring God's word to someone and it just ends up in bitterness. Prophesy again. Speak the words again. Or be like Jeremiah who said in Jeremiah 20 verse 8, he said, For me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. You think it was easy for the prophets? You think any teacher or speaker of the word of the Lord over the years has ever had it easy? He says, man, it's just brought reproach on me. But he says, if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. You might say, well, I'm weary of all of this. I'm weary of trying to get the word to my family. I'm weary of trying to tell people about Jesus when they just ignore me and it doesn't seem to do any good. I don't have the strength to hold up. Well, I've got great news for you. Because honey is not the only thing that flows from the rock. Look at the verse again. It's back in Deuteronomy 32. He made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. And I know you know the answer to this one. What is oil a picture of in the scriptures? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit. The Spirit. Last major verse I want you to see. Zechariah chapter 4. Turn over there quickly. Zechariah chapter 4. Second to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah writes of a vision, an interesting vision. He says, Zechariah chapter 4 verse 1, The angel who was speaking with me returned, and he roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. And then he says, I see also two olive trees beside it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And then I said to the angel who was speaking to me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That may be a familiar verse to you. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But listen to the context of it. Two olive trees in this vision, on either side of the lampstand. You know, the lampstand was one of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. The lampstand with its seven cups and its seven bulbs, and it would have these seven lights on it. And each of those little cups would be filled with oil that kept the lampstand burning in the temple. But in Zechariah's vision, it's amazing. There are two full olive trees. And coming down from the olive trees, spouts, as it were, directly going into the lampstand, providing an eternal fueling for the lampstand, keeping the fire bright, keeping it burning, pouring that oil out into the lampstand. Now stay with me, this is important, for the lampstand is also a picture of something in Scripture. It's a picture of the church. 
We're told in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, John said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And then later John writes this, as for the mystery of the seven golden lampstands, he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. God in His foresight and wisdom and even the poetry with which He does things placed a lampstand in the tabernacle that would shine light, shed light in the holy place of the tabernacle. And it's a picture of the church which also when filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit when receiving the anointing of God is able to shed light. We can't do it otherwise. You can have the word sweet and sour. You can eat it and taste it and it's sweet. You can have it bitter in your mouth. But to get it back out, to speak effectively, to do what God has called us to do, you can't do it with the Word alone. You've got to have the oil from the flinty rock. You've got to have the oil of His Spirit. Interesting, the flinty rock, what does flint indicate? It indicates fire. So the oil that breathes, or or, uh, it, it ignites a fire within us. And Zechariah Quotes the Lord saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Which is why there are churches that are great at Bible study, but poor on evangelism. Why? Because if you study the word, but you're not receiving of the spirit, you're not going to have the power to speak. You're not going to be able to get the word out. It's both. We've said this over and over. I told Cheryl again this week, you know, it's another word and spirit sermon. What is it, Lord, that we keep getting hammered with the Word and the Spirit and the Word and the Spirit and it's the two back and forth. And I'll tell you something, and please don't miss this, it's not just the Word and the Spirit, but it's the oil, the Spirit, it's the honey, which is the Word, coming from the rock, which is Christ. And those three things together, and we will be solid in our faith. Spirit, the Word, and Jesus. Both and these two things flow from the rock, which is, a, is Christ. I'm going to end with this question and let you get home to some warm fires. Will we, as we've seen happen so much in our country, will we grow fat and kick, neglecting the rock? Or will we, like John and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, will we prophesy again, relying on the rock? I love that you all showed up early this morning. This was probably one of the hardest Sunday mornings to get up and be here early. And one of the coldest that we've had. But you're here again. And the Lord would invite you to keep living your life this way. Don't stop. Keep walking forward in the Lord. Keep speaking the word again and again and again. Don't stop because the day is coming. The day is coming. When Jesus will pull us all home. And Father, we thank you so much for your word. We praise you for your spirit that you have given to us. Like those olive trees pouring into the lampstand, Lord, we are the recipients of your Holy Spirit pouring into us, fueling us, igniting in us a passion, giving us the ability to get that word that that does, Father, it does make our stomachs bitter when we consider the consequence of people who have rejected you. Father, would you get the word out? Use us as vehicles, as vessels, as instruments. Father, cause us to speak even when we are unaware that we might touch lives. We know what your agenda is in this area, Lord. 
We know your agenda is not growing a big church. Your agenda is not about an empire here on North Whidbey. We know, Father, your agenda is to save lost souls. Please, Father, align our desire with yours. That we might truly see lives changed, people saved in the days we have left until Jesus comes. Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.